Welcome to Zephyr Podcast Sessions with your host, me, Scott Howland. To find out more about Zephyr and how we're helping leading brands and businesses with customer journey orchestration, visit www.zephr.com. Hey, and welcome to the Zephyr Podcast Sessions. It's been a while since I've recorded one of these, but it's great to be back. And uh, I'm joined today uh, by the great uh, James Hughes. James, how are you? I'm good. I've never been described as the great James Hughes before, but I like it. Yeah, I, I, thank you. I'm going to keep going with that. Um, but no, look, um, for people that don't know the great James Hughes, can you, uh, can you uh, just uh, give us a quick lowdown on your experience, what you do as a job and uh, yeah, your day-to-day life in the publishing world? Well, I'd love to say that I'm like a, you know, a clown in a circus or a magician or something, because with a name like the great James Hughes, I should be. But I, unfortunately, it's nothing as interesting as that. Um, I'm the CEO of FIP. Uh, FIP is a, a trade association focused on the publishing and media world. Uh, and I came to that about three years ago, having worked for five years previous to that in the Middle East. And then before that, I'd worked for 12 years at the BBC, uh, where I'd worked uh, in a variety of different roles in their magazine business. So a bit of a varied career, especially in the last few years, but I've ended up now at, uh, at FIP and uh, enjoying the challenge of working once again within our industry. And uh, I'm sure we'll cover off that later, because obviously big things changed last year for FIP yeah. um, and things going on. Um, yeah. But look, let's look at historically then, right? Publishing was, um, I guess it was print right that was it was very print focused there totally. were, what, what what's this thing called the internet um and then the internet came along and kind of changed the game there um and very ad driven um and we've seen that change a lot recently again to mm. kind of consumer revenues um what was your first um uh, time you dabbled in in publishing <laughs> dare i dare i ask <laughs> well i joined uh, the bbc in 2001 that was my first uh, experience in the publishing World and I, the first brand I worked on was Radio Times, uh, which at that time was um, a very, very large magazine. It's still a large magazine. Uh, in those days, it was probably selling more than a million copies a week. Uh, and it wasn't long after the market had been deregulated. There was a time when um, the Radio Times could only carry the BBC listings. Uh, so they, they've been through a, a fairly hefty bout of competition. Uh, but it was a very interesting time because it was just at the start of electronic program guides and uh, really the shift from uh, navigating your way around television using a, a magazine towards using a website or, a, or a, an on-screen TV guide. And I worked on a couple of projects with a couple of cable companies and, and really helped uh, Radio Times at that time think about its digital strategy. Uh, but I moved very quickly into different you know, aspects of print and, and you're, you're quite right to characterize it that way. I'd, I'd say the early part of my career was very print focused. Um, one of the first big projects I did at the BBC was launch a magazine. I was a project manager for the launch of Olive magazine, which is a food magazine. And that was even in, I think that was in 2003. Um, even in those days, it was still very much a print first project. Uh, and of course, we saw over the course of my time there, the market change very, very rapidly uh, towards the adoption of, of digital. Uh, and again, you're right to characterize it in the early days. It was very much an ad play. Um, uh, and it was fascinating to watch the industry begin to undergo that transition from a print mindset to a multi-platform mindset. But no, in the early days of my career, very much a magazine business, very much a print business. Um, uh, my old boss used to used to say as a badge of honor that somebody had ink under their fingernails. In other words, they were a, you know, a print enthusiast and a print person through and through. Um, and that was the environment that I started out in. 
That's um, that's awesome and a, a great experience. Got a question for you though. Obviously, mm. you were you were very much UK based, uh, working in uh, the BBC. Yeah. Um, then you went over to the Middle East, working Gulf News. Was there any yeah. differences within that, and uh, any differences within the the way they worked, the way they monetized? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think um, like a lot of markets around, but every media market is different. And I was very lucky at the BBC to work in the international side of the business for eight years. So I got exposure to a huge different range of, of media markets. And I could see all the different business models that were out there. Um, and the Middle Eastern markets were and are still very ad driven, were very print driven. Uh, digital development was, I would say, four or five years behind where we were in the UK uh, when I left. Um, so it was a very different environment from a business point of view. The business models that they were going after were very different. There was still a sense of um, a lack of understanding about the impact that digital was going to have on their on their industry and on their world. Um, uh, and I think uh, now they're starting to realize that that, that, that ad-driven model, print ad-driven model doesn't work. And so you're starting to see uh, paid content and paywalls popping up in, in newspapers across the Middle East. Um, from a working perspective, I mean, look, every every country is different. Every country has its own working culture. I was lucky in the sense that I had worked in a number of different countries um, with the BBC, uh, doing deals and doing business in different places. And so I was very used to the kind of culture mix that you get in a market like Dubai. Uh, for those who have not been there, I mean, Dubai has four or five different um, uh, large uh, groups of people who've come there as expats from different countries. Uh, you know, a large group from South Asia, a large group from Southeast Asia, uh, a smaller group of Westerners. And when you get into that melting pot of cultures, you end up with a very different mix of working styles and different work working cultures. But I, I think the key to all of those things is adaptation and just trying to adapt your, your way of working uh, to, to fit the group that you're working within or to fit the, the company that you're working within. Uh, and, I, and I think hopefully I was able to do that. No, absolutely. And uh, I'm going to pivot on that question about adaptation shortly. But um, I've got one kind of silver bullet question for you to start yeah. with and uh, to yeah. kick us off today. Where do you think it's going? Where do you think the publishing industry is going over the next, I don't know, five years? It's a good, it, it's a good question, Scott. And I wish I knew the answer. I wish I had the crystal <laughs> ball because I think, you know, then I'd be in a much better position than I am right now. All I can, all I can do is say where it looks like it's going from my perspective. I mean, it looks like we're heading towards a situation where uh, successful media companies are going to have four or five different revenue streams that they rely on rather than the one or two that they had in the past. Um, I talk a lot about the decline of advertising, but I, I, I don't talk about it in the context, in the sense of meaning that advertising is going to disappear. Advertising is always going to be an important part of every media business's revenue mix. The difference is that it's just not going to be the most important part as it was for most of the last 70 years. And I think what I can see is that a successful business in the future is going to have a big stable or, or a stable of, of IP and brands that it owns that are, that are recognized because that's such a crucial lead in for consumers to come and transact with you and interact with you. And they're going to use those brands across all the platforms that, that, that it makes sense to do so to deliver revenue from as many sources as they can. So advertising will be joined by paid content, will be joined by e-commerce, will be joined by events, both virtual and live. Um, it will be joined by data services and all the other different forms of revenue that you can that you can do now in the, in the media world um, to build these kind of more diverse businesses. And that really is about mitigating your risk and managing the risk in your business. I mean, if, if the last couple of years has taught us anything, on top of the financial crisis of 08, 09, is that you can't 
have a business that relies on one revenue stream because you can't tell what's going to come around the corner. You've got to insulate yourself against these kind of shocks. And we're seeing that across lots of different businesses, events businesses becoming uh, content businesses, uh, content businesses becoming events businesses. Uh, The Irish Times, I was talking to Rob Kinsella over there and uh, uh, they launched their uh, online kind of um, events business in the end, right? And they were running that alongside their digital Irish Times. There's lots of different ways that people are looking for this, but it's this revenue diversification. Um, I think we coined it before the uh, the monetization mix and it's kind of these mix of different revenue streams are all going to come to the front I, I i do tend to agree with that um i said i'd pivot on your 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 statement earlier about adaptation yeah um obviously we had a uh, the pandemic hit us last year uh fip was primarily doing a lot of events and member association stuff um really? you had a lot of physical events um I, I think you were planning to go to portugal at one stage or something like that yeah. um for your your world congress and obviously that had to change um how was the, How were those decisions made? How did you quickly decide that you? Yeah. It can't have been easy, right? It wasn't easy, and um, you know we we were in the very unfortunate position in March 2020 of having an event, a physical event that we'd sold tickets for and we had a venue for and everything, um, you know, ready to go. I think it was the end of March 2020, uh, and I remember at the end of February, as as one of my um, friends in the industry never ceases to remind me, saying, "Oh, you know, I'm, I'm sure it'll be fine. It'll all blow over." And of course, we very quickly had to make that decision look i mean like most companies the the decision making process or if, if you like the rationale to make a decision in the first place was very easy because it's motivated by survival as a uh, not-for-profit uh, organization we rely of course on the support and the, and the fees that we get from our members but they don't pay all of the bills uh, we have to be a commercial entity and, and that commercial entity runs on events we don't run our events we don't uh, we don't survive so that provided the right kind of motivation for us right we've yeah. got to figure out a way to make this work so the decision to pivot from uh, from physical to virtual was 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 a twofold motivation the first was this is the only option. This is the only thing we can do in these circumstances. And secondly, it was a necessary option. Now we have to do this if we want to generate the kind of money that's going to enable us to, to, to get through what was a very difficult year. Now, we were in a nice position in that we had taken some decisions the previous year to cut a load of cost out of the organization. We were running on a very lean uh, basis. Uh, and I'm so glad we did that because it was only through that leanness of cost that we were able to be agile and we were able to have enough headroom to, to make the decisions that we did. But if I give you an idea of the scale of the change and the speed at which it happened, in the two years that I had been at FIP, two and a half years that I've been at FIP prior to the pandemic, we hadn't done a single podcast or run a single webinar. In the 12, 13 months since then, I think I've done 120, maybe even 150 webinars. <laughs> Uh, and we're just about to do the second series of our podcast. So uh, from from not knowing how Zoom works and not having a Zoom account on first, March, March the 1st, 2020, you know, we're now experts in it. Uh, so it's, it, you can you can make that change very quickly when you have to. Um, and I think that's been such a great lesson for us and for all the other media businesses that have been through that. And your Fit World Congress, right? Uh, we were yeah. we were uh, privileged to be part of that back in September. Yeah. Um, and that went from being what normally would be like uh, a week or maybe three, four days yeah. uh, in, in one place to to over a month's worth of content, right? Uh, how yeah. did you how did you plan that? And I thought it was very creative, by the way, because I know you uh, you yeah. went and hired a theatre. Yeah, that's um, right. Obviously, uh, the theatres in in a uh, no one could go and use those places anyway. You hired a theatre. You had a great setup. It was kind of like a you 
your own mini TV studio, I guess. Mm. Um, and how did those? How did how did that go for you? Was that a success in your eyes? It was a success, and it and it, and it was it was. Um, I'll talk you through a little bit about the process of how we arrived at that as well. I mean, I th- we were very lucky in lockdown to have the luxury of time to think. I think that was a a really underestimated aspect of the fact. Yes, we were all sat at home, we were bored, blah blah blah, but it gave us time to think. And one of the things we thought about and debated as a team on Zoom was how let's not make the mistake of trying to replicate in the virtual world what we did in the physical world this was to to bring it back to to kind of the publishing stories we were talking about earlier this was the mistake a lot of magazine and newspaper companies made in the early days of the internet right they wanted to replicate the print reading experience online Um, Mm -hmm. and they thought that was the only way that people would want to consume their content now of course it was one of the ways but it wasn't the only way Uh, and it's the same with an events business i think um, you can't take the condensed two-day format that you do in a physical world because you've got a cost constraint around the venue, because you've got a time constraint around taking people out of the out of their businesses, and just apply that to the virtual event. Um, so we said, well, you know, what's the logical thing to do? The logical thing is to allow people to fit our event in around their working day, which meant giving it more time, which meant doing fewer sessions per day, only having one track per day so not having not forcing people to choose that was a very early decision one somebody said why do we need to make people choose there's no there's no reason in a virtual world to make people choose between attending session a or session b so we just didn't on the physical side of it we then said well how the hell are we going to do this um we we realized that we would need we couldn't just use zoom we would need some kind of event management software to do that so we went out and found found some software that was a very tricky process but we got through it um, and then we, I remember sitting the week before the Congress started and going, okay, what, and I know what I'm going to say, but what am I going to say to? And I thought, well, oh God, I thought, God, I haven't got a camera. I mean, I haven't got a camera to put this on. And then I thought, well, how am I going to look at that? I haven't got a monitor that I can look at it on. So I'm not kidding. The week before the Congress started, I went to Curry's with a credit card yeah. and I bought a camera, two televisions, two MacBooks. And at the time that feels painful. Oh my God, I spent 5,000 quid on kit yeah. or whatever. And I thought, well, hang on a second. I'd be spending 250,000 quid on a venue for an event. So this is a tiny yeah. expense in comparison. Um, and we had to buy a mixing desk and all this other stuff. Yeah. Then the, the next thing is you sit down in the theater and you go, well, how the hell am I going to actually make all this work? Where does this plug go? And all that kind of yeah. Once you get past all that stuff, and you deliver an experience, um, a, a virtual event experience. I think this, to, to go back to your question, I think the success is measured in the engagement. And yeah. for us, where a conventional Congress would have two or three or 400 people turning up in person, we had over 2000 people register for the Congress, wow. uh, which was an astonishing number. And we were getting cumulatively, I think cumulatively across the whole of the sessions that we ran, something like 10 times the engagement that we would get in a physical venue. Uh, And the surprising bit, the most surprising bit for me was that we recorded every session, of course, and put it all in an event library. We thought, oh, you know, we'll get a few hundred views. We had twice as many people watching the sessions on catch up as we did watching them live. And that event library that's still there is still being looked at today by delegates. So a totally different experience from what we had before. 
And that kind of moves me on to my next question because that's awesome. And it's great to hear that you got great success within that. And obviously looking mm. at those engagement stats, that, that's like a huge increase. Mm. Um, obviously opening, I guess also opening up to other parts of the world that might not be able to come to your in-person events. Uh, and like and that, people, which... it was a really crucial point is that traditionally, if you think about a company like Condé Nast, the top two or three people at Condé Nast would come to the Congress. Yeah. I think for this one, we had 120 people register from Condé Nast because we'd done a deal such that it was free for the individual you know they paid as a company but the individual staff members didn't have to pay so you know that was a great way for them to engage with with an event that they would never otherwise have been able to go to and that's awesome to hear because the more people that hear about all of these tracks and things it, it's always useful uh, for the industry and and the business um and and map that on so you talked about your event library then um obviously you've uh revamped your website your membership offering yeah. over the last kind of 12 months too just throwing it all into one go uh doing a lot of work um and i'm sure the team have worked very hard on that yeah um what was your when you when you were going through that process what was your focus on there like w what did you find your value points were well i think the focus was twofold the, the the and you know we should say full disclosure we worked with zephyr in, in doing this and it was a really great uh, process to go through thinking about you know forcing you when you work with a technology provider like zephyr to put in your your membership or your payable you have to think about the underlying value proposition and the processes that support that i think in our case it was twofold there was a a, a recognition that content and paid content is the future of the organization and that's not just the videos that we talked about but it's creating new content for our members uh, that we needed a way to enable that investment putting a paywall in is the right way to do that uh, secondly, it safeguards the membership fees that people are already paying. It shows them that there's some aspect of the value in the membership that is reserved uniquely for members. It's something I would have loved to have done sooner, but our technology stack just didn't support it. We had a very old website, out of date tech stack and all the rest of it. So we went through a process of updating the website and then adding the Zephyr tech as the, as the kind of gatekeeper of uh, identity for members and so on. Um, but I think the the overriding motivation there and the and the value was was just was was your question really. It was to show everybody that there is a value proposition associated with membership, and it was to show everybody that um, we have a plan to invest in that value proposition. And we're very conscious, like everybody, our value can't stand still. It has to continue evolving. We have to offer more and more value each year to members um, to 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 reward them for their engagement with us. And you know, they're telling us very clearly that content is one of those crucial things. Everybody wants to learn. Everybody wants to know what's going on in the industry. They want to learn from their peers. Uh, and the content that we provide is a way for them to do that. And it's great content, I will say. And uh, I also know from from our experience, it was great to work with you and the team on that project. Uh, and it's ongoing, mm -hmm. right? It's always iterating and yeah, always moving forward, stops, which... Yeah which is great um uh, one kind of last serious question from me what's coming next for fit what 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 comes next for fit yeah i mean i think there's two things we're, we're thinking about well three things we're thinking about and the first is is the content investment we've got a new editorial strategy that will see us producing a lot more content than we've produced in the past we're just spinning that up now and uh, and making that happen and we've got a, another couple of virtual events to do we've got a direct to consumer event happening in uh, June, which uh, you guys will be part of, I'm glad to say, uh, alongside a whole bunch of other partners. That's going to be focused very much on that thing that we were talking about earlier, about, about all these new, they're not new models, but they're new focused for media companies on directly monetizing your consumer. So paid content and paywalls, membership, e-commerce, all those things where 
uh, you've got some kind of recurring revenue model uh, uh, and you're trying to monetize a consumer based around that. So it's a very exciting new opportunity for us. It's a new event. It won't just look at media business models. It's going to look at business models from across the broader industry. So we're trying to get companies like Volvo and Peloton and, and Tesla who've got you know recurring revenue models in their businesses uh, to come and speak as well. Uh, and that's just really us taking, taking uh, a look under the hood of the thing that we think is the crucial strategic priority for most businesses full stop right now, not just media businesses. Um, then in the autumn, we have the Congress once again, which is our big annual flagship event. It's been running since the 1920s. I mean, that's an immense responsibility to be safeguarding an event that's been running for nearly 100 years. You, you don't want to be the one that, that messes it up. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, we're running that again in the autumn. But I think the third thing we're thinking about is what's the transition back to physical life, in-person life going to look like? Um, vaccinations moving at different speeds throughout the world as a global business that's a key factor for us in how we return to to uh, the real world let's put it like that um, where and when we'll be able to hold events next year how many people will come uh, what's the appetite going to be and I think one of the crucial factors in that is what is what is uh, the company's uh, sense of confidence at the moment it won't really matter how an individual feels it won't matter what a government says the trigger for this will be when the big companies say, okay, you can travel again. That's, that's, the, that's the, the key return to normality that we're looking for. And uh, I guess that's uh, how long's a piece of string right now. Um, yeah, it's with, a watching brief. You've just got to monitor it. And it's a watching brief. And we'll, you know, we're going to try and do some in-person stuff in, in October uh, in the UK. And we're expecting only a UK audience for that. We might get a few more people, but let's see. Um, and, and then next year, we'll have to play it by ear. But I'm, I'm, I'm fairly hopeful that by the time we come to the Congress in 2022, which will be in Portugal, as it should have been in 2020, <laughs> um, that we'll have, you know, a few hundred in person if not a few more than that um coming along for that well um i'm already looking forward to that because i haven't been out of this country for years uh, now <laughs> <laughs> well i can but... tell you that i haven't been on a plane since february 2020 and i worked out that was the longest period since 1982 that i have not been on a plane so yeah it's very long yeah, I think that's the longest period in my adult life I've not been on a plane. So yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Um, but look, I um, really appreciate your time, James, to talk through this. I've got two questions I haven't told you about. Oh, um, okay, and, good. Uh, so um, I like to throw these in. So I'm creating a playlist for uh, of music for up keep people upbeat during these these times right yeah. um hopefully we're 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 getting towards the uh, the better times now um if you were to name a song an artist or a, a song to, to add on to that playlist what would it be uh i would have to say my favorite artist who is who is beck um yep. who i absolutely love and i'm just trying to remember the name of the <laughs> i love him so much <laughs> i can't remember the name of the song um Amazing. but it will be something from him hold on i will find it for you right now uh <laughs> Here we go. Uh, there we go. So off, off his last but one album. So Dreams by Beck. That's a great, Dreams great, by Beck. great upbeat song that will keep you happy and keep you going in difficult times. I saw Beck a few years ago when I last went to Glastonbury. Glastonbury. Um, yeah, it was good. Um, and um, last one from me. We, we finally get to go to the pub yeah. and have a drink. <laughs> yeah. Finally. What's your go-to drink of choice? uh well i have to say at the moment uh, well either guinness i do like guinness that's that's uh, maybe that's just me having been through the cold winter as well uh but i'm, I'm a bit of a i'm a bit of a bourbon man so we did a lot of work in the last few years in america 
and um, we were very lucky in those in those times to be able to try some of the great kind of American bourbon. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big bourbon drinker. That probably awesome. be my drink of choice. There we go. Look at that. Um, I owe you one of those then, uh, or probably a few. Um, <laughs> um, look, really appreciate you being on the Zephyr podcast today. Thank you very much for your time. Um, and uh, hopefully you and I get to catch up soon and have that uh, bourbon. Yeah, I hope so. It's my pleasure to come on. Thanks for the invitation.